Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to the Case Study segment of the podcast. Eric, when you're a dad like I'm a dad, we have kids. And we try not to pick favorites. And I know in our journey around the podcasting world, around these finding these stories, these case studies, they all are like children and they have these amazing aspects to it. But this one, this one I'm a little bit excited about more than the rest. Yeah, no, this one's really cool. As I was joking with you a little bit earlier today before we, we started the recording, I wasted, wasted's not the right word, but I spent like <laughs> an hour or two hours of my day just playing around the websites, looking at pictures, looking at videos, really amazing stuff. Can't wait to share. Yeah, I think it. we were talking about it. It's almost like it has all the tools, if you will, of what, what it is that we're looking for when we started this podcast in terms of, you know, a business element in terms of, you know, what are we doing about ESG? What are we doing? Not only that, but in the energy evolution space, one of the things I love about this story is that there's a little bit of an unconventional partnership amongst a lot of people that we are polarized in a lot of ways and what we expect out there in the world and what we've seen and who's with who and who's against who. And it's kind of an us versus them. And so I felt like this was such a great opportunity to see what it's like to really kind of bridge that gap. And for people that would, aren't normally associated with each other, like marine biologists and, and offshore drilling engineers and, and offshore drilling platforms and, and reefs aren't your typical things we talk about at the same time. Yeah, no, this one definitely checks all the boxes. So. Yeah, definitely. So we're talking today with Blue Latitudes, and not only is there for their for-profit company, but their Blue Latitudes, the foundation, about their Rigs to Reef program. We're very honored to have both of their co-founders with us today. We have Emily Hazelwood and Amber Sparks. Before we talk to them, I'll tell you a little bit about them. Emily is one of the two co-founders and the managing partner for both those organizations. She's a marine conservation biologist and an offshore energy consultant with about 10 years of experience in that area, specializing in conducting marine ecology impact assessments and designing and implementing ROV surveys for government and private sector clients. She had a role, she actually did part of her time in the Deepwater Horizon Macondo BP oil spill, where she got to experience this type of event firsthand. She has a bachelor's degree from in environmental science from Connecticut College and a master's degree in marine biodiversity and conservation from Scripps Institute Institution of Oceanography. She's been a diving for about 10 years and is a PADI certified dive master and a scuba pro deep elite ambassador. And so that's Emily. She's one half of the of the duo. Amber is the other one, Amber Sparks. She's also the co-founder and managing partner for both Blue Latitudes and the co-president of the foundation. She's a marine conservation biologist and offshore energy consultant. She's a former ocean curator at Google, as well as a former National Science Foundation researcher at the California Academy of Sciences, which curated her passion for using artificial habitats to mitigate anthropogenic losses and degradation of the natural habitats. She has a bachelor's degree in marine science from UC Berkeley and a master's degree in marine biodiversity and conservation from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Like Emily, she's also been diving for 10 years. She's a PADI certified advanced diver and also one of the two scuba pro deep elite ambassadors. And between the two of them as well, one of the things they do share is that they've been awarded and recognized by Forbes in, as their 2018 30 under 30 list for the energy sector. And so Eric, I know we talk about, I've heard people give me advice saying that you should surround yourself 
with people that are smarter than you. And I think that we've done that. We've done an excellent job. Today. <laughs> this is one of those episodes where I'm always really disappointed in my resume right. once you're done speaking. And we haven't even got to the insights, sorry, where we're talking to Dr. Benfield and James Wiseman. So we're we're setting ourselves up for a lot of an opportunity. A lot of crying tonight. <laughs> a lot of crying. But all joking aside, this is really a great opportunity to step into this. And so I wanted to start with the first question, if, if we could, with Amber. Tell us, give us an idea of the opportunity that y'all saw. What was the opening? What was kind of that aha moment where you saw this vision of where you could step into that helped create what y'all are doing? Yeah, thank you guys so much for having us here today. We're really honored to be a part of this podcast series. And to really answer your question, I mean, we recognize that there are offshore oil and gas platforms in every single ocean. And many of these structures have formed vibrant and thriving reef ecosystems, and they're thriving beneath the surface. So most people from their beach chair see these structures offshore. And at least from the Californian perspective, you think, you know, oil spill, or you have a really negative connotation. You you see our, our dependence as a society on offshore oil and gas resources, and maybe you want to see that that gone. You don't want you don't want that to be out there on the horizon. But what people don't realize is that below the surface, there's so much more. All the beams and cross beams are covered in life. We see scallops and enemies, mussels, schools of drac mackerel, and these structures are incredibly important ecosystems. In California, a paper came out that they are some of the most productive ecosystems on the planet, which is quite a statement for these for an offshore oil and gas platform. So. Work that we do is to really capitalize on the opportunity that arises with decommissioning, where traditionally oil companies will completely remove these structures from the seafloor. And we come in and say, but what about these ecosystems, these reefs? Can we find a way to work together and repurpose these structures permanently as artificial reefs through the decommissioning process? Yeah, amazing. So, so Emily... I know the, the two of you work together on this. You both recognize this. There's a, there's a team effort. You, you step into that. Here's this wonderful idea. makes sense. And then as you go down this road, you're going you're gonna to experience some, some obstacles, some, some, some differences, some issues. Can you give us an idea as y'all created this foundation and this company? Give us one example of an, opportunity, of an issue you knew might happen and did, and then one that you didn't expect on your way. Well, you know, I think one of the negative perceptions that we get about this program is you know, you hear a lot from traditional conservationists, you know, those that want the oceans to go back to the way they looked, you know, 2000 years ago. And of course, who wouldn't? That would be a wonderful environment. You know, I'd love to see what the oceans looked like back then. And their argument is more of a purist view that these are not natural structures. They're artificial structures. They don't belong in our oceans. And so you can't argue with that. But Amber and I take the perspective that, in fact, we can't go back to that time frame. We're in this existing, you know, anthropogenic era. These are the oil platforms that are out there that have just so happened to also accumulate marine life and create these unique ecosystems. So how can we manage the problem as it exists today? And how can we capitalize on that prob- problem and, you know, derive some opportunity out of it to protect these ecosystems and also, you know, be able to aid industry in that way as well and help mitigate, you know, medi- mitigate some of the footprints that they may have. Nice. So can you give us an idea? So tell us what the Rig to Reef program is, Amber. Can you give us, as you go through these, this journey and as you all, when you actually created it, what's the, what's the mission and how do those two organizations collaborate? Yes. So I will, I will say we, that we did not invent the idea of Rigs to Reef. This is an idea and a concept that's been around for decades now. 
In the Gulf of Mexico, they've reefed over 500 platforms in the states of Texas, Louisiana, Alabama. It's an active and thriving program. However, in other areas around the world, it's yet to be fully implemented. And so what Rigs to Reef really stands for is it's an opportunity for an oil company to modify a structure as a permanent reef through the decommissioning process. And there are typically three ways they can do this. First is they can remove the upper portion of the structure. So that's the top side, what you see from your beach chair. And then they usually cut it down between 60 to 80 feet below the sea surface to allow for ships to safely draft over. Another decommissioning method could be to topple the structure on its side or to tow it to an area of ecosystem need. Now, no matter how they quote unquote reef the structure, the point is to leave a portion of the structure in the water column so that it can continue to function as an artificial reef. Awesome. And so, and so Emily, so sitting down with what y'all have created, what has it been like? What has the experience been like since you've launched both these organizations? I think the experience has been overwhelmingly positive. I think what I really enjoyed about this experience from a personal perspective, from a personal level, is that it allows us to learn a lot about a variety of different industries, whether that's offshore energy, whether it's business, how to run a business. It allows us to have a better understanding of global regulations it's a very, you have to wear many hats doing what we do. And I really appreciate that opportunity. We also get to work with, you know, some of the most brilliant minds that are out there, whether it's scientists to government agencies to, you know, fellow conservation biologists, we just learn so much from other people and we get exposed to really fascinating individuals. So that has overwhelmingly been a very positive experience for us in forming these two companies and learning about what the process might be like. And I think, you know, What's been surprising for us has been the curiosity from folks about not just from the industry perspective, but the general public are very curious about these. You know, most people will never see an offshore oil platform. Most people would have no idea about these ecosystems that thrive beneath the surface. And I think the majority of people are shocked to learn that these ecosystems exist there because they traditionally associate oil platforms with oil spills, with environmental destruction. It's not commonly associated with thriving reefs. So I think the curiosity of the general public, as well as the general public's willingness to seek out opportunities to you know, remediate your own reliance on offshore oil and gas. The fact is we all, most of us drive gasoline powered cars. We turn on the lights in our home, we use plastics, and these are all contributing factors to those offshore oil platforms. We all have a little bit of a responsibility for those structures. So I think folks are engaged with and interested to learn in opportunities as to how they can mitigate for that past. So the theme of the podcast is ESG and what we can do and how this applies to those areas. So Amber, I just want to know if you could just, if you could do this softball answer around the environmental impact that this, that what you're doing has and kind of give us an, an, an idea of why that's important and how that impacts the environment specifically. Definitely. So these structures, as I mentioned before, many of them have developed into incredibly valuable reef ecosystems that not only are compensating for nearshore losses as runoff, pollution, overfishing degrades our natural resources, but we're finding this that a lot of species are moving offshore and making their permanent home on these oil platforms, and they're becoming de facto marine reserves. They're incredibly valuable. In the Gulf, they've it's been proven that they've helped the red snapper fishery rebound, and in California, like I mentioned, they've been noted as some of the most productive ecosystems on the planet. 
The secret is, is that these structures stretch from seafloor to sea surface. So there's a lot of real estate for marine life to grow and thrive. And at different water depths, you're going to find different ecosystems. So it's a very unusual artificial reef on which you have multiple ecosystems that are kind of building and working together in one area within the water column. Because of that, they've formed in some cases, incredibly valuable reef ecosystems. So what we're looking to do is by repurposing these structures as reefs through the Riggs Reef Program is preserving a part, if not all, of that ecosystem. So Emily, if you can tell us a little bit about maybe some of the, either a social impact or governance, kind of a political impact that you've seen that you all, that this, this program has developed and produced. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think you see a really striking example of how these structures influence government when you just compare California to the Gulf of Mexico. California has a rigsturies law. It was passed in 2010. And since that time, we haven't reefed a single one of our platforms. We've also decommissioned very few. We have done some decommissionings in California, but it's been well over a decade, two decades since we have, versus you look at the Gulf of Mexico, which has reefed over 500 platforms. It's a thriving, thriving program. And you start to try to understand and pick apart why that is. It's all within the United States, but two very different perspectives about how to manage these offshore resources. And a lot of that falls back into public perception. And so those two elements are really closely tied. In the Gulf of Mexico, I think a big reason why it's been more successful there is that there's thousands of platforms there. So there's a lot of jobs, there's a lot of money flowing into these states. There's a lot of familiarity with how these platforms contribute to not just the economy, but also to you know the recreational and commercial fishing industry. In California, we just have 27. And there's not a lot of familiarity, especially for such a big state. There's really not a lot of familiarity with these platforms. And for the most part, most Californians, they're very green people, and they associate these platforms with the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill. They don't associate it with an ecosystem or a healthy ecosystem for that matter. And that makes it very challenging to move the program forward in California. But what we found, especially in the last three to five years, is that perception has been shifting in California. We've been sitting in on some of the town hall meetings regarding what's going to be happening with some of the decommissioning projects here in California. We've been surprised to be hearing from so many members of the public that are now you know, raising their hand to say, I'm not so sure we want to remove these structures. So it's really interesting to compare how this program can influence from a social perspective and from a governmental perspective, what different perspectives can happen even just from state to state. Amber, I wanted to get your thoughts and kind of follow up on some stuff that Emily just said, really around economic impact. One of the things that Sean and I always talk about, we, we love talking about environmental benefits and social benefits, but one of the things that we always talk about is you can't focus on sustainability unless you're sustainable. There's got to be some ROI. There's got to be some economic driver behind it too. And I think that's probably a lot of what you see in Texas, but wanted to get your thoughts around just from an economic impact, you know, when we're talking about reefing a platform, you know, is there a benefit to the producer? Is there a benefit to that offshore drilling contractor to, you know, doing something in place, whether it's t- toppling it over, or whether it's moving it to a new spot? I've also heard comments just on this in our conversation right now about the fishing industry and otherwise. So just wanted to get your thoughts on kind of economic impact and other drivers. Maybe there's government interference, maybe there's perception interference, but there's economic value there. Oh, absolutely. The economic incentives are what keep the oil and gas in the industry 
stakeholders really interested here. Decommissioning can be very costly. It really varies where you are in the world, what resources, what onshore infrastructure is available for recycling these massive structures, some the size of the Empire State Building. So you really have to look at a location to location basis to understand the true economic impact. But we do know that through the reefing a structure, industry stakeholders usually do save a significant amount of costs. And that's because, as we mentioned, a portion of the structure is being allowed to remain in the water column. Now, through the rig reef laws we have in the Gulf, typically any cost savings is going to be shared with the state. And the share that the state takes that cost savings and puts it into an endowment for marine preservation conservation. It helps to fund the Departments of Fish and Wildlife and these reefing programs. And then the other portion of that cost savings will go back to the oil company stakeholders. This is a similar financial model that is in the Riggs Reef Law in California, though it has yet to be implemented. But there's a certain percentage of cost savings that will go back to the state and the other percentage will remain with the oil companies stakeholders. So that savings is really what keeps oil companies involved and incentivized. Interestingly, in California, that rate of cost saving has actually increased over time. So where at one point it was 55%, it's moved up to 65% going and it will soon be at 85%. Where 85% of the cost savings goes back to the state, only leaving 15% for the oil company stakeholders, which, as you might imagine, doesn't quite retain that balance for keeping those stakeholders interested. So it really, in order for it to be a win-win-win for both the environment, the industry, and the government, we have to be able to find that balance, especially when it comes to economically, how you incentivize those groups. Well, so, so Amber and Emily, I was wondering if you could maybe take another step with that thought process, because it seems to me like there's all this incentive. It seems like it makes so much sense in every way to do this and that you're both uniquely positioned where you can speak kind of, kind of the, the marine biology, the, for lack of not to be stereotypical, but to kind of the more environmental conscious, you know, that you're talking about California and Texas. And so if we, if we allow for that dichotomy for a moment that you could walk in and be a, a steward and be a, and be a bridge for that voice is along within your understanding quite well of what's going on in the oil and gas world and understand the economics. It sure seems like it'd be an easy thing to line up and for both the all and blue latitudes to be this bridge. And I say that knowing that at the same time, it could also be where the drawbridge could be shut. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience about what it's been like to walk into a room and, and be that voice to both sides and helping bridge that, those gaps? Sure. So I think, you know, a big part of what's important about communicating the Riggs Reef's message is transparency. And I think in the past, sometimes messaging has failed when you fail to share that this was an oil platform. This is an oil platform. It used to produce oil. It's not just an artificial reef. It had a history. It had a past. And it's also important to communicate where the money goes. There is going to be a cost savings by the oil company stakeholders. There is going to be money also that goes to the state into an endowment for marine preservation and conservation. Where we've seen success is very often we've gone into rooms to share lectures on this program. What we time and time again get questions on and what the public always comments on is that they appreciate the transparency that we offer. Like, this is how this program works. These are the pros because there's numerous pros, but there's also cons. And the reality is not every oil platform is a good candidate for an artificial reef. There are a variety of contributing factors that lead to some platforms just not being good candidates for this program. It's not a one-size-fits-all program, and you need to look at 
stakeholder considerations. You need to look at if you're going into a different country, what are the economic constraints and opportunities? What are the unique cultural values? What are the ecosystems that are there? You know, it's not something that you can just ubiquitously say, this is going to work everywhere and every platform should be reefed. And so I think by sharing that transparency with the public, we seem to get more of a friendlier response and more of an engaging interest in the program. It's like anything, you have to make a decision by weighing those pros and cons. Not, It's not going to be a perfect program, a perfect fit everywhere. Amber, I wanted to circle back and talk a little bit about something that when I first started researching on this was surprising to me. I didn't think of it this way, but y'all, y'all kind of led off with it, but wanted to expand on it a little bit more. I don't think people realize that Right now, even before you decommission it, there's a thriving living ecosystem there. There are all kinds of wildlife that are thriving there. We're not just going to take it out because it's, you know, from, as you guys like to say, from the beach, it's just a big, ugly oil rig, right? But there's real life down there that is thriving. Wanted to just have you guys expand upon that and just the scope, you know, if a rig's been in the ocean for 20 years sitting there, what is the scope of what's down there? What is going on? I know there's a benefit to recreational divers and recreational fishermen and commercial fishermen, but just to the ecosystem generally, just speak to the, the magnitude and power of it. Yeah, definitely. So these structures are going to mimic the environments in which they've been placed. So in the warmer, more tropical waters of the Gulf, you're going to see barracuda, different corals growing all over the structure. You might see grouper, red snapper utilizing these structures as habitat. In California, we have more of a colder water ecosystem, cold water corals. The beams and cross beams of these structures are so covered in life that you can't even see the metal that's there. In fact, many of the oil companies actually go down and use a power washer basically to get off, to clear and clean off these structures down to a certain water depth to minimize drag because the weight of the marine life that's been growing on them is so heavy that they're worried that it might jeopardize the integrity of the structure. So that just gives you an idea of the magnitude of the marine life that's been growing and thriving on these structures. The marine life that we see swimming around at different fish species and, you know, that are both commercially and recreationally valuable. Again, that's really going to depend on where you are in the world, what type of fish species you see, but it is known that they have been able to act as a, a space to, for these important fish species to spawn, breed, and grow to maturity. And in many cases, they are functioning as essential fish habitat for our local ecosystems. So it's one of the things we love from an entrepreneurial, from a business story is we show the picture of the garage that Google got started on or the napkin that some idea at a lunch, this dream started. And then when it comes all the way to fruition, there's just this moment. Can both of you kind of tell, tell us about that moment where you'd had, you had this idea way back and you worked hard you kept trying, you looked at all the things, you got through all these obstacles, but that, was there a moment like when you were diving at the first platform that you reefed or was it just, what was something that, do you remember a time where you were kind of hit and we're like, I've actually, we've actually done this, it's working and it's amazing. And it's just kind of that euphoria that I like to talk about the rainbows and unicorns. We're very pragmatic, but there's also this other element about, you know, the emotional side of all this and how much it means to you. And I know you're both passionate about the marine side. Can, so can you give us a story about that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, our story started quite a while back, even though we formulated our company in 2015. Right out of undergrad, I had the opportunity to go and work on the BP oil spill as a field tech. 
I'm originally from New Hampshire. So that was my first time being down the Gulf of Mexico. It was the first time I'd ever seen an oil platform. And what was interesting for me from a perspective of being from New Hampshire and seeing these oil platforms, seeing the destruction that was wrought by one, was that a lot of the fishermen that had lost their jobs, BP had actually gone and hired some of them to drive our sampling boats. And the fishermen would just be talking about how they couldn't wait to get out on the weekend and go fishing on these oil platforms. And at the time, it just seemed bizarre to me because I thought these oil platforms were negatively contributing to the environment. I had no idea that they could also positively be contributing. And this was straight from the horse's mouth. This was straight from the local fishermen that were saying, you know, this, these are awesome fishing sites. And that kind of planted the seed for how these platforms might better serve our communities, how they might better serve our oceans in a very new and unique way. And so when I went to graduate school and I met Amber at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, I learned from Amber that California also had offshore oil and gas platforms, but unlike the Gulf, they hadn't reefed any. And then, you know, it kind of dawned on me, this is like a very unique program and it's it, why isn't it working in California? And then even bigger picture, there's oil platforms in every single ocean on the planet. So does that mean we could do this for all these oil platforms? And then really this took flight the first time Amber and I went diving. We went diving on an oil platform with Dr. Milton Love's lab up in UC Santa Barbara. And the second that we went overboard and saw what the platform looked like underwater, it was it was astonishing. I'd never experienced something like that where it's like, you almost felt like you had to like look underwater and then look up again because you couldn't believe what you were looking at, that this is the same oil platform that I'm seeing above the surface. And it just clicked and it just made sense. This is something that makes sense. This is something we should try and do in other parts of the world. Amber, did you have a, a similar moment? Yes, definitely. On the California platforms, there are a lot of sea lions that are very playful and they like to hang out on those oil platforms. Some of them will jump up on onto above water deck or beam or something like that. And then they often hunt for the sardines or schooling fish that tend to accumulate underneath these platforms. So they have a lot of these sea lions there and sea lions kind of like your underwater dog. They come, they want to play, they're curious. And so on one of our first dives, we had, these sea lions coming in and sort of blowing bubbles in our faces. And it was very definitely a really cool experience to be so close and connected with, with nature also on this incredible structure that definitely was a click. I realized, wow, look at the, look at what's going on here. This is truly a functioning reef habitat. And so that's really where the seed of curiosity and passion for the Riggs Reef program got started. So Sean, I, I joked a little bit earlier that I blew off my day job for a couple hours today and, and played around on the website. I would strongly encourage all of our listeners, if you want to see the passion that just came out from Amber and Emily, just go spend a couple hours watching videos and looking at pictures on the website and see the breadth and amazingness of what's underneath the waves. It's really pretty cool. I would, again, everybody needs to go check out the website. Well, Amber and Emily, this has been a pleasure. This is love everything about this, about what you're doing. We just want nothing but the best for, for your organizations and hope that continues to bear fruit. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And with that, so stay tuned. After the break, we're going to be joined by Dr. Mark Benfield and James Wiseman for the Insight segment after this. 
Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition. Cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. Welcome to the inside segment of the podcast. So Eric, we got to, we got to do the Blue Latitudes Rigs to Reefs episode. We just got done listening to it. A couple of takeaways on your end. Yeah, we always talk about the circular economy. People are always worry about, hey, can, what can we repurpose and reuse? And, and for us in the energy industry, there's a lot of discussion around repurposing infrastructure and pipelines and things like that. And that makes sense. Or if you're in retail, what are we going to do with that big old box that Walmart's not using anymore? But this idea that there's these thriving ecosystems that already exist under the water and that we can repurpose and reuse and continue to use those for high value, not just for us, but just for the ecosystems, is, is just amazing to me. Yeah, and I think when Amber mentioned the vertical, the vertical reef, if you will, the extension in my little mind, right? I was just thinking, obviously, right below the platform. I mean, obviously, it goes below that, but just the idea that you'd have this continual ecosystem that would then vary in terms of its, you know, complexity and the and, and the, you know different green life and whatnot, and you could all the way down just seems it's like a rainforest on its on its side almost. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. And the idea that, and I think they made a good point, which is this stuff is here, it's now, we can't rewind the clock. Why would we want to pull that ecosystem out? Why would we want to yank it out? It's thriving, it's living, there's amazing things going on there. Why would we want to yank it out? Yeah, for sure. So in the inside segment, we have two voices we're going to hear from. I'm very excited about this. We're going to have James Wiseman and Dr. Mark Benfield. So we're going to start with Dr. Benfield. He's a professor at Louisiana State University in the Department of Oceanography and Coastal Sciences. And he's also an adjunct appointment at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, where he currently is. He's got a PhD from Texas A&M University, Master's of Science from the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, and he's got a Bachelor's of Science from the University of Toronto. He currently lives in Baton Rouge, and he's got a couple of teenage sons. And so with that, Dr. Benfield, thanks for coming on and talking to us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you about a really interesting topic. Yes, sir. Uh, and I should just clarify that I'm at Louisiana State University. I'm not at Woods Hole at the moment. Okay. So, yeah, you know, what brought me down to Louisiana was offshore oil and gas platforms. I came down to do a postdoc from Woods Hole, and there was a professor in my department who was doing research on platforms that were on the shelf. So they weren't, you know, much deeper than about 100 meters. And we would fly out to those platforms with all our gear and we'd sample larval fish and invertebrates from the platforms. And that was just an incredible eye opener for me because I'd come from a background where I was going out to sea on research ships. And we, were, we would sort of mow the lawn, taking samples at different locations for a couple of weeks, and we'd come back to shore. And I realized that these platforms were a completely different world. They were stable. You know, as a guy who gets seasick, I never experienced any motion sickness on these platforms because they're fixed. And they had power and air conditioning and water and just everything you would need to do science. And so, you know, I, I started doing research on those platforms and we could see further out these other structures that were further out in blue water. And I started wondering about, you know, what science could you do 
from all these thousands of platforms that Emily was talking about in the Gulf of Mexico, from the drill ships, from the spars, from the mobile offshore drilling units. And that kind of led me to another big part of my career, which was the Serpent Project, which is a global project to use offshore oil and gas facilities for science, particularly their remotely operated vehicles or their ROVs. And so I've been partnering with a lot of different oil companies in the Gulf of Mexico, flying out to their deep water drill ships and platforms and spars and working with the ROVs that are out on those facilities to look at life, not only at the surface where there's, you know, there can be vibrant communities, but also down deep where they can be equally vibrant communities. You know, it's, it's allowed me to be a naturalist. It's allowed me to sit back and, and figure out what's going on there just by watching and just an amazing opportunity. When we think about the future kind of, of offshore oil and gas exploration, and I think, you know, even a, a conservative person saying the next 30 or 40 years, we're going to dial back that in quite a bit. And, and as, as we ramp that down, we'll have more and more potential rigs and floaters and everything else that are out there that are maybe at end of life, so to speak. And all the research you've done and the time you've spent out there, and we think about the future of that and the opportunity, specifically from rigs to reef and anything else. I mean, what do you see in the future as a partnership and the, and the vision for kind of the oil and gas industry and dealing with offshore and dealing with environment and that from that standpoint? Well, I think we're definitely moving into deeper water, you know, and some of the deeper structures that are on the seabed are nearing end of life. And those structures, you know, really isn't economical to bring them ashore. It may not even be technologically feasible to safely take them apart and remove them. And so creating reefs in deeper water, and when I say deeper, I'm talking down to maybe a thousand feet of water, 300 meters or so. That's a real challenge. And we still don't really understand those deep water communities, whether they be natural or whether they be reefs on associated with an oil and gas structure. So one of the avenues I think that we need to consider, and maybe this is where some of that win-win-win allocation of funds goes, cost savings goes, is to try and monitor these, these sites. So once you establish a deep water rigs to reef site, start monitoring it using remotely operated vehicles, using fixed time-lapse cameras, things like that, instrument it, and try and, and see how those communities develop so that we can learn you know, what works, what doesn't work so well, how can we improve on future deep water reefs. So you know, I would say that moving into deeper water and learning more about how these deep water, cold water coral reef systems function is going to be an important part of the equation as we move forward. So Dr. Benfield, you mentioned that you, you've talked to many oil and gas companies. This is not something that even Emily and Amber talked about. It's obviously part of their plan and part of what they have to do. But a lot of times we're given this impression that it, it doesn't matter to the industry. It's just kind of this throwaway thing, good or bad. Can you give us your impression of your experience with oil and gas companies in regards to what they're going to do ultimately with these assets out in the Gulf and other places offshore? Well, you know, I've interfaced with people who are on the operational side of these platforms. But I usually deal with people who are in the environmental HES side of things. And so I'm dealing with marine scientists who are working for the oil and gas companies. And they're as committed to conservation and and healthy stewardship of the oceans as anybody in academia. So I've been really fortunate to work with some great marine scientists with companies like Shell and BP and Chevron. 
And I think all of them, you know, love the marine life that's down there. They don't want to turn it into a garbage dump. They want to make sure that these facilities are properly transitioned into functioning deep water communities and shallow water communities, you know, if that happens to be the particular size rig we're talking about. So, you know, my experience has been extremely positive. Obviously, there's a cost saving, but I think to the marine science side of the oil company house, that's not part of the equation. They really want to see good science done, and they want to see these facilities transitioned into healthy functioning deep water communities. Just expanding on kind of this future forward-looking aspect and thinking about not only traditional oil and gas, but offshore wind farms and thinking about repurposing rigs and, and putting wind farms on top of them, or even the even the, the companies that have shifted heavily into, you think about somebody like an Equinor that's shifted heavily into offshore wind. Are you starting to see partnerships and cooperation with those companies around you know, what, what, what they're doing offshore with respect to their infrastructure and, and maybe repurposing some old traditional oil and gas infrastructure? Yeah, you know, one of the stumbling blocks has always been who takes responsibility for these structures if you leave them out there and if you don't cut them off at the depths that Amber was talking about. So if you leave a structure out there, who maintains it? Who takes over liability for it? And more recently, we're starting to see some innovative partnerships. There's an organization called Gori, and a former employee, I think he was with BP, has now got a foundation where they're trying to use offshore rigs, functioning platforms rather, not rigs, for offshore aquaculture and for culture of other marine products, algae and things like that. So, you know, I think there are, there are a lot of uses that these structures could be used for rather than just extraction of hydrocarbons. You've got a stable base out in the ocean that you can access from ships and from helicopters. You have generators, you have water, you've got all of the infrastructure that you need for a base for a mariculture operation, base for a wind farm, if you're talking about something like that, or a base for an ocean observatory that you can, you know, have one fixed point, but you could send out gliders or ROVs, vessels to kind of expand your footprint from there. So yeah, I, I think in the Gulf of Mexico, it's kind of an exciting time because we're no longer just thinking about convert, cutting these things off below the waterline, laying them on the seabed, but maybe there's a use for these and maybe there's a way they can, we can pay for someone else to turn them into a different kind of operation that is responsible for maintaining it, keeping the lights on, making sure it's not a hazard to navigation. Well, Dr. Benville, this goes by way too quick as always. And so we definitely appreciate your time. And, and we're going to segue into, into James's bit. And so we're going to talk to James Wiseman. James is a project manager for Chevron in the Eastern Mediterranean Business Unit. He's got over 20 years of experience designing, building, operating, and decommissioning offshore drilling facilities. He's got a bachelor's and a master's degree from UC Berkeley in civil engineering. Proud dad of two boys. Absolutely loves being in the water, which is what we're going to talk to him about today. And he earned his Coast Guard captain's license when he was just 19 years old doing a whale watching and fishing charters out of San Diego, California. So with that, James, thanks for coming on and talking to us. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Good to be here. So James, you obviously have an oil and gas background, which we can talk about a little bit later, but I think that where you've come in, can you tell us something about your your experience with Riggsery specifically? And we were talking about videos earlier, Eric, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. You, sir, are an amazing underwater photographer as well. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, how I got into this was during graduate school, I, I got an internship out here in Houston. 
And I came out and I worked for a company that all they did was decommissioning projects. So I did that for the summer. I got to fly on helicopter, take the boats out, do the projects with the big heavy lift cranes. It, it was great. And it was almost like going to summer camp, but I got paid for that. So it was pretty cool. You know, learning about the Gulf of Mexico and working on fishing boats in San Diego, coming from California, I was just so amazed at, at how much the marine life out here was different, but also just amazing. You know, the warm water here is so great. And so I've been here in Houston for 20 plus years now and spend as much time out on the water as I can. Obviously doing underwater photography, like you mentioned, I've got my own boat. My wife and I are both divers. She's a dive instructor. So yeah, it's, it's a really good fit. One of the things that I want to get your thoughts on, and just now that you've been in the Gulf of Mexico and, and they've reefed 500 of them, I mean, just what kind of impact has that had in the Gulf of Mexico when we think about ecosystems? When you and your wife go out on the boat and, and y'all are taking people out there, I mean, that's, you know, 40 years, 50 years ago, none of that existed, really. I mean, just kind of the impact it's had on the Gulf of Mexico ecosystem, which obviously translates into all the amazing pictures we've seen that you've done. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good question, too. You know, I think from a fishing standpoint, we have so many recreational fishermen and, and fisher folks here in, in the Gulf Coast. And there used to be thousands and thousands of platforms. You could see some from Galveston. There may be, may be a few still, but there really aren't that many left. And the fishermen were saying, well, if, if you take out all the platforms, it's like, where are we going to go? going to go fishing. So there are really very few natural banks and places to fish in the Gulf. So it's, it's great that we have these rigs to reefs programs here because it spread out and created so many fishing spots for places for people to go. And that kind of spreads out that load, that impact that we would see, you know? So it's really good that we've got the rigs to reefs program in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, we've got the Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary out here as well. I just want to put in a plug for them. <laughs> you know, the they just expanded the marine sanctuary. It just passed through all of the hurdles and, it, and it's been expanded greatly to something like 13 banks now from just three just last, you know, just right before this. So if you think about those are the natural banks that are protected and then you've got thousands of these platforms and then you have 500 rigs to reefs out here as well. And, and that's really a big benefit around from a diving aspect. And so is there, I mean, there's a commercial aspect to the rigs to reefs program outside of this, the ecology, but then like you want to dive. So we, we talked about, you know, everybody's dive certified. It's, it's obviously part of this in terms of just the ecology. Tell us about the, maybe some of the economics around that and why that's, why that's important and what that can do for this type of program. You bet. Now that's a good question too, Sean, because there have been a couple of dive boat operations running out of this area, you know, and where do they go? They go to the flower garden banks and guess what? They stop and they let you dive at one of the rigs that's nearby, you know, we call them offshore platforms, right? <laughs> right? But that to me was like being an engineer. That was like the most exciting dive of the trip, right? So that was pretty cool. And there used to be tons of those platforms out around the Flower Gardens and Stetson Bank. And, you know, over the years, as they've kind of reached the end of their productive life, they've been going away. And one of them that was actually in the sanctuary was decommissioned a few years ago. They removed a little bit of the platform like Amber and Emily were talking about. They take the deck off. They took about 85 or 90 feet of the jacket down. But now there's that permanent reef there that, that's in the sanctuary. And, you know, you were talking about the vertical, how cool that mm -hmm. is. I mean, think of a platform as a seamount, right? Like that is the ultimate dive is you go out in the middle of the ocean when you can't see anything and you dive one of those seamounts. So they, they really mimic that. 
explain for everybody a little bit more what a C-mount is. For somebody like me that's never been scuba diving and doesn't know what that means, I assume you just, it's literally a mountain under the water that all of a sudden you just come up on and it's just a reef that just shoots up off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it could be, it could be like volcanic, it could be built by coral, but it's, it's something that comes up from deeper water and like coral will grow right up to where low tide is, right? Where, where the sea surface is. So, you know, you get this incredible vertical structure. And like we were talking about, you have all these different habitats, you know, you get the high energy, energy, bright light coral reef, for example, you could have on the top of a coral reef seamount. And then as you get down into like the twilight zone, you get these different environments. And, and you can get that on, on a, a natural seamount, like in the Sea of Cortez or something like that. The flower gardens is, is a perfect example. Those are seamounts too, that they're growing on top of a subsurface salt dome that's under the seafloor. And so these Ugly old <laughs> offshore platforms are creating the same amazing thing underwater. That's what's just fascinating to me. Again, I, I encourage everybody to go look at the video. <laughs> so if I could ask you a little bit of a work question, if you don't mind, going forward, do you see opportunities? Is there an opportunity from a design standpoint? For like, as I know we're not doing a lot of them, but are there ways going forward? And are there efforts being done that you can do to make it more viable? Is it in terms of like design protocol and design parameters? Knowing it's going to be reefed at the end so that we don't, and is there a way to do that so that they're always that way? Or is it kind of dependent upon the area? That's the rainbow unicorn again, right? So, <laughs> you know, it's funny. We, we don't have a lot of people that go in and, and they're designing an offshore platform from the very beginning. And they say, we're going to design this to become an artificial reef in 30 years. You know, it's just, it's just not part of the process. It's just kind of making its way in right now, which is really good. You know, we in the industry, we, we try and do reduce, reuse, recycle. If you look at reduce, there's a lot less facilities that can produce just as much oil and gas. And then reuse is fascinating, right? Rigs to reefs is a great reuse of oil platform. But maybe you guys saw in the news that Elon Musk, he actually bought two floating drilling rigs mm -hmm. and they're going to use those for mobile launch units. So, you know, there's all these things, wind farms like you talked about. You know, it's kind of a shame to see all these platforms getting removed in the Gulf and then, you know, in a few years, we're going to see them coming back as, as winter, wind turbines, right? So all those have been removed, and then they're going to have to go put some more in. So hopefully people think through those in the leases for the things that are getting built in the future. Well, excellent. So thank you so much for coming in, James. Thank you, Dr. Benfield, for coming on and, and doing the inside segment. This was a lot of fun. Eric, any last words before we before we get done? No, an amazing episode. And thanks to everybody for joining us. Yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it does speak to uh, one thing I do hope that I do want to end on is you know, we kind of danced around it a little bit and, I, and I'd like to make the point that I think this is a great example that I think the, the answers we're looking for around what we're going to do about, you know, ESG issues and more importantly, the energy evolution is this collective aspect, right? I think a lot of us, I think at the end of the day are, are not, are, are kind of tired and don't believe in the whole polarization and it's us versus them. It's not Texas versus California. It's not, you know, either having an ocean that's sublime or has to have all these oil rigs that are destroying the world. I think there's an answer in the middle of all that. So I hope that's what you come away with as a listener. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And please, as Eric said, check out all the things that are happening, all these things in this area. It's fascinating stuff. And with that, we'll be back next week. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN. And here are the events on deck for May 2021. This month, we have four events. But if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our online events newsletter. We send it out every month and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the 20 YPO's networking mixer at the Houston Club on May 25th. Next we have our three online events, the Post-Industrial Summit Series from May 4th to June 22nd, 
the Data Fabric and Data Ops webinar on May 5th and the Maritime Career Day hosted by Women Offshore on May 21st. Other than these events, OGGN has a live stream this month titled Identifying and Evaluating Advantaged Oil Projects on May 5th. So make sure to check that out on our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information. You can also find more information about that or any of the live streams or events we have coming up also on Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for May. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, hit it in the day. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, hit it in the